Welcome again to Grace Church of Philly. Welcome uh, wherever you are around the world. We're glad that you can join us to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. It is always a joy to gather with God's people and to worship him regardless of what is going on in your life today. These are moments when God wants to bring you uniquely into his presence and give you a taste of, of, of the world to come. You join with those who are now worshiping before the throne of Christ, knowing that one day you will be there. Yesterday, we had the uh, opportunity to celebrate uh, God's grace in the life of uh, my brother, Steve's brother, Jim. Uh, probably one of the best friends we've had in life. Uh, I, I noticed how many pictures we have of the three brothers together on their motorcycles. Again, I don't know if people call it the Three Stooges or <laughs> the Three Amigos or just uh, three brothers who really loved each other and Jim went to be with the Lord the same day that my father-in-law did, August 14th uh, of this year. And we had the opportunity to just celebrate God's grace in his life and be reminded of the gospel and of Jesus' words uh, that he's preparing a place for his people in his father's house. And uh, one day we will all go home and gather with our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ and live forever with them. For the next uh, three weeks, I want to talk about having a gospel-formed life out of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. There's actually four messages I'm going to bring, but the last one will come when we return from uh, Cameroon, uh, in October, I will preach three messages. Then on the Sunday we leave, uh, Pastor Rolando will preach on September 27th, and uh, then Gary will preach on the Sunday that we're gone. Uh, and then uh, I'll come back and preach the Sunday we return, if I'm able to. Uh, you never know when you come back from Africa. But uh, pray for that trip. We're looking forward to a time when we will see, I believe, 53 or 54 men uh, graduate from the three-year program that we provided, teaching them twice a year, uh, theology and biblical studies, and uh, it's been a wonderful time. And then we will go uh, outside of Yoonde and do another conference in a village area to another group of pastors there that we've been uh, honored to be able to get to know and teach them. So that'll be a September 27th through October the 8th, I believe. Pray for that. But this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace 
be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Steve reminded us last week that uh, there are forces at work in the world that we live in that are beyond our control. And he also reminded us that these forces are never beyond the control of our sovereign king. We're all deeply aware that we live in a critical time in history. The world as we know it is rapidly changing. Some things for the better, some things for the worse. But we live in a world that is ever-changing. But Peter reminds us that God's purposes are unchanging. His purposes are to call out of the Gentiles, out of the nations, a people for his name. And then his purpose is that everyone whom the Father calls to himself will become conformed to the image of his Son. We saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we are being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. For the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about pursuing God's purpose of transformation in us, of pursuing a life that is formed 
after the likeness of Christ that is formed by the power of the gospel. On September 1st, I received a text message. It was telling me that September was my month. It was my month of divine blessing, my month of miracles, my month of deliverance, my month of elevation, of endowment, of favor, of possibilities. Now, I appreciate those words. I know they are well-intended. But they were really words that were grounded in bad theology. They weren't just wishes. They were promises. They were declarations that somehow this person had the power to declare that this is what my month would be. Now, I would love all of those things. And I know that God is not opposed to my happiness or your happiness. But I also know that his greatest intent is not my happiness, as you've heard it said so many times, but my holiness. And if I am becoming holy, if I am becoming conform to the image of Christ. If I am pursuing life God's way, not my way, because I can try to pursue the good life my way. I can make my own rules. Uh, I can live by my own guidelines. I can set my own goals. And I can say to myself, you must have happiness at whatever cost. Get it any way that you can. But I know that if I will truly be happy, it'll be only because God is making me more holy like his son, Jesus Christ. That the good life is actually the life that is lived in submission to Christ. That God determines what is good for me. His word defines what is good and what is bad. And his spirit provokes in me what is glorifying the God, what God will call good. So I want to talk about this life that is formed by the gospel that is becoming more like Jesus Christ. Peter will give us a portrait of that. He will tell us this is what you need to add to your life. And we will see that it's it's not just a, a portrait that's hanging on the wall that somehow you can take it off and make it yours, but it's actually a portrait that is in the process of being painted in the artist's studio, that, that God is the, the master artist who is taking the model of Jesus Christ and with his paintbrush of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, he is gradually and progressively making us more and more like Jesus Christ. Before I look at the beginning portion of our text this morning, which I will call the provision for a gospel-formed life, over the, these four weeks that I will speak from this text, I'll talk about the provision for a gospel-formed life, 
and then the pursuit of a gospel-formed life, and then the actual picture or portrait of a gospel-formed life, and then I will end in October with the proof and the promise of a gospel-formed life. But before I look at this provision that God gives us, uh, let me set the context for it that the readers in Peter's day were living in and living through. He's addressing believers in the first century living in what is now called Northern Turkey. These believers were infected by what theologians will call and historians will call incipient Gnosticism. Incipient simply means it was the beginning of it, the initial stages of this this philosophy that was beginning to permeate the first and the second century world. Gnosticism, as I believe we have heard our brother Rolando talk about many times when he was going through 1 John, Gnosticism comes from a Greek word which simply means knowledge. It was a heresy in the first century and second century that stressed the importance of the possession of special knowledge that came to a few people that enabled them to know a special way to God. This special knowledge was, as we evaluated in the light of God's word, it was heresy for a number of reasons. One, it was not rooted in the full and final revelation of Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us that it's in him that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Another heresy in Gnosticism was that this special knowledge was only for an elite group of people. It was also a knowledge that was primarily, primarily intellectual. It did not necessarily have to transform your life and your character. And it was a form of knowledge that looked at the material world, the world that God made, the world that God declared good, and it looked at that world as evil itself, that there was something inherently evil in the material world. That was the ancient view. We live in a world today where there are many, many I would say, similarities to this Gnosticism of the first and second century. It's not called that, but the seeds of it are there, the similarities are there. We have religious systems that place traditions and institutions and leaders either alongside of the Word of God as equal authorities or many times even above the Word of God as a greater authority than the Bible. We have religious and non-religious leaders that claim that they have some sort of special knowledge, some special revelation, some privilege that has been given to them. They may be religious leaders, they may be scientists or philosophers or 
self-appointed prophets, but there are those who claim that God gives them special insight and direction. We face it in church from time to time. You've heard me say that people will come in and say, you know, God has given me a word of prophecy for you. And uh, my, my, my standard response is, well, I already have the Bible, you know, 66 books, over 1,100 chapters. And, and I, I really, after 50 years of being saved, I have a, still have a challenge of grasping everything that God has spoken to me. So whatever he said, hold it. Hold it till I'm done with what he's already given me. We have those similar to first century Gnosticism who have knowledge, they profess to have this knowledge, but they have no relationship with God. In its biblical context, the theologian and professor Douglas Moore reminds us that the Greek word for knowledge always involved a type of relationship that knowing was knowing not just something, it was knowing someone. And true knowledge is not just gaining information, true knowledge is knowing intimately the person, God, who gives that information. We have people who claim to be Christians. Oh, I believe that. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I believe that Jesus is Lord, but there is no evidence in their life of the transforming power of the gospel. That's Gnosticism. To say that I believe, but have no effect of the power of that belief in my life. As Peter writes to counteract this heresy, he is teaching them that a true knowledge of God is a knowledge that not only saves one's soul, but it's a knowledge that transforms one's character. It transforms one's life. Douglas Moo put it this way. He said, what Peter and Jude also are dealing with is an outbreak of false teaching that saw in the free forgiveness of the gospel a golden opportunity to indulge their own selfish and sinful desire. Now notice, they had truth, free forgiveness in the gospel. But the truth was distorted when it came to behavior, when it came to character, because that truth became for them a, 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 an argument for living the life of a libertine, living a life without law. If you're into reading commentaries, I would uh, encourage on Second Peter and also the book of Jude, uh, the commentary by Douglas Moe, it's technical at points, but it's readable to most people. 
and you'll find it very, very helpful. He makes this statement about Peter and Jude. He said what Peter and Jude concentrate on is not what these people are teaching, but the way they are living. That these books, Second Peter and Jude, are concerned about false behavior. Behavior that draws other Christians into their own sinful and destructive lifestyle. He says the Gnostics have no use for any kind of authority, especially spiritual authorities. And so the Gnostics would engage in all manner of sins of the flesh, illicit sex, homosexuality, excessive drinking and eating, greed for money, all of which was allowed under the notion that I am freely forgiven and I can do what I want to do. But if you read on in Peter and if you read the book of Jude, you, would, you will see that Peter and Jude do not hold back any words for those who profess to know truth, but whose lives deny truth. They both talk about how by their life they are denying the Lord. And in denying the Lord, they say they are destined for the condemnation reserved for those who rebel against the Lord. We're going to see over these weeks that Peter's concerned that both our head and our heart are in union in the gospel. That what we know to be true and what we love, what our affections go toward, and what we choose in life all have a consistency because they are grounded in the gospel. They're grounded in God's work in our lives. So that was the introduction. Now for the message this morning. I want to talk about God's provision for a gospel-formed life out of the first couple of verses of 2 Peter 1. There are three gifts that Peter talks about, that God provides, so that none of us can say, I can't do it. I can't be conformed to the image of Christ. I can't conquer this sin. I can't grow. Now, Peter, before he talks about adding to your faith, he first wants to assure God's people that they have everything that is necessary to live the life that God has called them to. Three, what I call gospel gifts. And the first one is this. God provides saving faith. Again, Peter says in verse 1, he writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have obtained, actually the word is you have Received it. You didn't work for it. You didn't muster up the faith. 
but you received it, that your gift of faith came from God, as Ephesians 2 says. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This act of believing is the consequence of nothing within me. This act of believing is a consequence of God's divine and powerful work in my life. Now my faith is real and my faith is mine, but my faith is not possible apart from God doing a work in the life of someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins and giving them ability in their deadness to hear the gospel with dead ears and to believe the gospel with a dead will. It is God's work. It's not your work. And that should comfort you because if it's God's work of saving faith, then you never have to fret, you never have to worry that your faith won't be real if you have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You will not only have believed at some point in your life, you will keep believing. This Thursday, September 10th, 2020, for me, marks 50 years of faith in Jesus Christ. And as I look back, I realize even more that that night when the Spirit of God brought me under conviction and brought me to repentance and gave me the ability to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that it's impossible that any of that could have been of my own power because I loved sin too much. But the goodness of God brought me to repentance. And the grace of God enabled me to receive a faith that was God's gift to me. And I love what he says about this faith, how he describes it. He says it's a faith of equal standing. Peter, the one who's speaking, is a Jew, a Jew who traveled with Jesus for three and a half years and who at some point in that traveling came to believe and came to confess that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And when he did that, Jesus told him, this wasn't anything of yourself. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. God enabled you to see who I am. He describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and as an apostle, an official messenger of Jesus Christ. Peter is one who is appointed with authority to shepherd and to lead and to lay the actual foundation of the church as Ephesians 2 says. 
But when he talks about faith, he says, you received the faith of equal standing. That the genuineness and the power of God's salvation that he brings to anyone, he brings to everyone. So that no one can say to Peter, well, you know, you're Peter, you're an apostle, you traveled with Jesus for three and a half years. You have this unique position in the church and yes, I understand why you can be transformed and you can change. Peter says, no! We have a faith of equal standing. And it's all by the righteousness of God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It all came about because of who God is. The only way you and I could be made right in the eyes of a righteous God is if he were to give us the gift of faith to accept what he did in our behalf. Because God's righteousness is absolutely perfect. And nobody has attained to that. And God's righteousness is absolutely just. You break his law, you don't meet his standard, you deserve to die. And God does not sacrifice his righteousness to rescue you and me. But he satisfies it. As you've heard us so often say, that Jesus lived the life that we failed to live. There's the righteousness that God demands of everyone. Jesus said, I did it for you. I lived the life you failed to live. But God's righteousness is also just. It says, if you've failed that on your own, you deserve to die. And Jesus said, I'll take care of that too. I'll not only live the life they failed to live, I will die the death they deserve to die. Yes, all that we have is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of this, as often in the beginning of their epistles, Peter prays that Christians, that their life might not be a stagnant life, but that the grace of God, the good favor of God, and the peace of God, that inner sense that all is right, that this might be multiplied in your life in the same way that it was initiated in your life, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. A gospel-formed life is one that is rooted in a God-given faith in the gospel. But secondly, Peter tells us that God provides all things that pertain, or as older translations say, that are necessary for life, 
For this life, this new life that you have in Christ, this eternal life, God provides all things necessary for life and godliness. That sort of removes every excuse I have. You say, I can't do it. Well, Peter says, God has provided all things necessary for this life that you now have in Christ and for godliness. All things granted that pertain to godliness. The word for godliness is simply a word that means, sort of my definition, worship that is shown in all of life. It comes from a Greek word that has the idea of, of, of being reverent toward God and respectful toward God. And when it's used to describe behavior, that you are a godly person, it means that you have a life that reflects devotion, worship to God. It's what the older reformers would mean when they talked about having a life of piety. You know, pious has become a bad word, a diminutive term. Uh, you're pious. But pious was always a good word. That piety meant that your life reflected your worship of God. That your marriage was a reflection of how you worship God. Your stewardship was a reflection of how you worship God. That when you went to the job and you did your work, it was pious. It was a reflection of how you worshiped God. Yes, Peter says God has given you all things to live the life that he's called you to in Christ. He's given you all things to have a behavior, a demeanor, a way of acting and living in this world that reflects that you worship God. He doesn't here tell us what these all things are. He simply tells us the source, that it's by God's divine power that he's given you these things. And he tells us the means through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the content must be wrapped up in these all things must be wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That God has brought us into union with Christ by the work of the Spirit in our life. And he wants us to be identified in his death and his resurrection and all of his perfect work. God wants us to look to Christ and find in him our sufficiency. 
And then a third gift. He says God provides precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, Peter's not saying what Benny Hen used to say, that somehow you can become a god which maybe he borrowed from Mormonism, which does teach that if you're a man, not for women, but for men, if you're a good enough Mormon, then you can become God of your own world someday. And you can have a harem of wives and make spirit babies to populate that world. Peter's not talking about us becoming gods. He's talking about us becoming like God, godly, demonstrating the character, the likeness, the nature, the attributes of God because we're being conformed to the image of his dear son. And as the spirit of God and the word of God work in our lives as we believe God's promises he's given to us and the old the King James says exceeding great and precious promises the ESV says to his precious and very great promises and there's so many but if I read on in Peter one that's firm in Peter's mind is Jesus is coming and this captures him. It assures him that God will one day judge the wicked and the ungodly. And it assures him that God will rescue his people into a place of perfection one day. That promise sticks with him. But there are many. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We read God's word because we want to know what has God promised me? God hasn't promised us everything we desire, everything we want, or everything we think God should do for us. So we read his word to find what are his promises that I can stand on. Because Jesus said, if you hear my word and you do it, you really believe it and act upon it, then you'll be like a house that was built upon a rock. And the rains will come, and the storm will come, and the waves will crash. Yes, you will suffer enormous challenges to your faith in life. But if you're founded upon the rock, the house stands. Exceeding great and precious 
promises rooted in this true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Precious, exceedingly great. Can you live a life that is being transformed by the gospel? Can you have godliness, godlikeness in your marriage? Can you have godlikeness in those difficult relationships in life? In a world that's antagonistic, that's growing in its enmity toward Christianity, can you be godly? So many will say, I, I can't do it. I cannot live up to what God expects of me. And Peter simply says, you can. If God has given you faith, then it's real faith. It's saving faith. It's transforming faith. And if God has saved you, that he's given you everything in Christ that you need to do all that he's called you to do. The problem's not with God's promises or God's provision. The problem is my own sinful, rebellious heart that will not submit like a child and simply say, I believe your word, and I will act on what I know to be true in the word of God. Peter's simply saying, you can do it. You can live the Christian life. You can have this beautiful portrait of a godlike life painted and developing in your life. You can do it because God has given you everything you need to accomplish it. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, bring us this morning to repentance for the excuses that we make for our failure, for our sin. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to repentance for our unbelief our lack of faith in your word. Bring us to repentance for our ignorance that we do not continue to pursue the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we do not pursue to be found in him as complete, as rich, as sufficient, as able to be and to do what you've called us to do. Bring us to repentance for not savoring Christ and loving Christ and pursuing Christ. And then bring us to renewed joy as you open our eyes and our hearts to see 
all that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen.